Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Well, good morning. Uh, It's great to be here with you. And this is the final week of our series uh, entitled Visions of God, in which we have been looking at times in Scripture where God reveals something of himself, often in quite surprising ways, in order to help us understand him and worship him more clearly as a result. And today, I have the privilege of doing the second of these weeks on Revelation, looking at this beautiful passage in chapter 5. And if you weren't here last week, uh, you missed out. Uh, It was a great week. We, we, uh, We talked about hearing God's voice and how God loves to speak to us so that he can speak through us as a church. And I've been encouraged this week hearing the number of people who've emailed me going, wow, your sermon worked. (laughs) I asked God to speak and he has spoken this week. So it's encouraged me and I would encourage you to encourage one another by sharing the things that God is saying. Uh, I feel like he wants to equip us so that we can be the church he intends us to be. And so last week we started by looking at Revelation chapter 1. And I pointed out that one of the reasons most of us get stuck in Revelation is because we think it's a book about the end of the world. We think it's a roadmap to destruction and everything. That's not what the book is about at all. Actually, it is known as an apocalypse. That's the very first word that opens the book, the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word means the pulling back of a curtain so that you can see behind, so that you can either see into heaven or you can see the events of earth through the lens of heaven. And that, I think, both of those elements is what we see here in this passage. And if you have big questions about Revelation, and I'm sure many of us do, I still have big questions about this book, uh, then there are a a series of talks that I gave a few years ago called Theology Matters, an Introduction to Revelation. You can find those on the website. I hope you may find those helpful. But here we get a glimpse into heaven where people are bringing their longings before God. Revelation describes this world as a world full of pain and brokenness and suffering. And everyone is longing for it to be put right. And in Revelation 5, these creatures bring those longings before God and ask God, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this world? And in this chapter, I think we see something of who God is and what he intends to do in the world, how God intends to put the world right. Uh, Spoiler alert, it's through Jesus, but (laughs) you probably guessed that anyway. Uh, But we see this revelation of who Jesus is, what he is like and how he is going to heal the world. And the vision begins with a scroll. And you get the sense that the answer to the world's problems are on that scroll. Everyone is intently focused on the scroll. And it says that there is writing on both sides of the scroll, which was rare, because usually you'd roll up a scroll, you'd only write on the one side. So that gives us a clue. It's not a short answer. (laughs) There is a long answer to the problems of the world. But it's sealed seven times. And in the ancient world, you would seal a legal document to make sure that no one tampered tampered with it. And in the book of Revelation, the number seven refers to completeness or fullness or perfection. So this is completely, perfectly sealed. No one can get in except one. They are weeping and they're longing. They're longing for someone to open this scroll, but no one can be found who is able to do it. In fact, actually in the ancient world, when you opened a scroll, particularly of a legal document, the very moment when the seals got broken, that didn't just mean, oh great, now we can read it. That moment symbolized the enforcement of whatever was on that scroll. So the angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll? He's not just looking for someone who's able to read it. He's asking for someone who can bring about what is written on there. The one who will bring the healing of the earth. And they look around and they can't find anyone. And so they weep. Because if the scroll doesn't get opened, the world can't get healed. And then the angel says, no, there is one who can open the scroll. Don't weep. Here is the Lion of Judah. 
And I want to start with that little picture today. What is the lion all about? Well, this idea of the lion goes right back to the very first book of the Bible. So we're here in Revelation, the end of the book. The very first book of the Bible. In chapter 49, Jacob is talking to his sons and he is praying blessings over them. And he has 12 sons who go on to be the 12 tribes of Israel. And over one of them called Judah in chapter 49, he says that he is like a lion's cub. And the scepter, the symbol of rule, will not depart from his house. So from the very first book of the Bible, you get the sense that God is going to send his king through the bloodline of Judah. And that's exactly what happens. David, the greatest king, comes from that bloodline, as does Jesus. So from the very first book of the Bible, you get a sense that God is promising to put the world right to rights by sending a king who will come from that bloodline and will be like a lion leading his people to victory. Now, I think... In every culture, at every age, it is a universal symbol. The lion is a universal symbol of might and victory and power. The only time that is not the case is when it comes in threes on an England shirt. But leaving that aside, (laughs) I'm kidding, it's coming home, etc., (laughs) etc. Don't lynch me. (laughs) Three lambs on an English shirt. (laughs) In every culture, every time, the lion is a symbol of power and might and force and victory. And that was definitely the case for the Jewish people. You see that in the Bible. You see it outside of the Bible as well. There's a key passage in a book called Second Ezra, chapters 11 and 12. It's not in the Bible. It's in the Apocrypha, uh, these Jewish writings outside of the Bible. But there's this depiction of the Messiah, the coming king, who is like a lion who mauls an eagle. And he takes down this eagle violently. And the, vi- the eagle represents Rome. So if you were to ask someone in the first century, how do you think God is going to put the world to rights, or even before that, they would have said he's going to send his lion who will wrestle his enemies to the ground. He will be mighty and powerful and forceful and victorious. And so when John hears, don't weep, there's a lion, he turns around expecting to see that. And what does he see? I saw a lamb. The angel announces a lion and he turns and it's a lamb. He's not even a full-grown adult sheep. It's a lamb. In fact, the Greek word um, emphasizes his weakness and his vulnerability. So he turns, expecting to see something really powerful. He sees a little lamb. In fact, it's not even a lamb in good shape. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. It looks dead. And we know it's not dead because it's standing, and it's standing by the throne, but it looks like at least it has been dead. And the word that he's used, fatso, it doesn't just mean killed or dead. It means violently slaughtered. So John turns around expecting to see the lion who will violently slaughter the enemies of God. And what he sees is a little lamb who looks like he himself has been violently slaughtered by the enemies of God. Imagine how confusing this would have been. But this is no normal lamb. Actually, despite how it looks, it's a powerful lamb. It says that the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, in Scripture and in apocalyptic literature, seven refers to fullness, completeness, perfection. Uh, horns represent power, and eyes represent the ability to see. So <laughs> sometimes you can overthink it. So it's about his perfect sevenfold power in the horns and his perfect sevenfold sight. This lamb is omniscient and he is omnipotent. And he stands where? At the throne, the place of power. And the people sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So despite how he looks, the lamb is actually powerful, but he's not a lion. And in Revelation, as I said, numbers are significant. 
And Jesus is referred to as the lamb 28 times right through the book. And scholars say that the number of seven represents fullness and the number four represents the whole earth, like the four corners of the earth. So seven times four represents the complete universal victory of the lamb. So we've got this kind of weird muddle of ideas going on. They're expecting a powerful, mighty lion who'll wrestle their enemies. Then they get a lamb who looks like he's powerless. He looks like he's dead, but actually he has power. What is going on here? Well, I think John and, and God want us to know that these two aspects, lion and lamb, tell us something important about who he is and how he is putting the world to rights. But how does that work? Often we use the phrase, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. We sing it quite frequently. But actually, that phrase isn't found in the Bible. It's not even found in this passage. Now, think it's a helpful phrase and we can still sing the song which is good because you did it earlier right (laughs) but we've got to think about what we mean when we say that Jesus is the lion and the lamb because I think many of us have a faulty understanding of what this means I think many of us assume that there are two aspects to God's character he's like a lion and he's like a lamb and in some ways he's like a lion he's ferocious and he's violent he's powerful he's mighty and he's victorious and in other ways he's like a lamb he's humble he's gentle etc and we have these two ideas of God sort of competing at the heart of God. I would put it to you that if that is your view of God, it's pretty hard to know whether to trust and love this being. Because if you don't know if he's going to be like a lion towards you or a lamb towards you, it's going to be hard to trust him, honestly, with your life. It suggests that there's some kind of division in God. I would put it to you that's not what this passage is saying at all. It's not saying that in some circumstances he's a bit like a lion. In other circumstances he's like a lamb. It's not the lion and the lamb. It's the lion and the lamb (laughs) hyphenated. It's one image together. I was wrestling with how to explain this in the office this week, and I was like, oh, it's so hard to put into words. And Joel Wade helpfully said, well, is it like when you cross a lion and a tiger and you get a liger? (laughs) Which I was like, well, no, particularly because if you cross lion and lamb, you get Liam, which is... (laughs) (laughs) No one wants that. (laughs) So uh, thanks, Joel. Sweet of you to try. But here's... here's (laughs) Here's the best way I can think to explain what I think is going on in Revelation chapter 5. And it's using a well-known psychological test. Many of you will be familiar with it. It's called the Stroop effect. So what I want you to do is this. We're going to put some words up on the screen. And as soon as I do, quickly, very quickly and out loud, don't be ashamed, just go for it out loud. I want you to say the color of the font. Don't say the word that's written. Say the color of the font. You with me? Okay, go. Well done. Well done. I've eased you in gently. I'm going to get a bit faster and go for it. Full voice. Ready? Go. (laughs) Next. Well done. You're getting it. Someone in the south just went, ah! (laughs) That's not a color, but I feel your pain, love. It It was just spectacular. Okay, next. Wonderful. Okay. And breathe. (laughs) Now, it's it's difficult, right? It's not impossible. You can do it, but you have to train your brain to think differently, right? Because our brains are so used to seeing this particular combination of letters and, and reading it in a particular way. Whereas actually, I'm asking you not just to read the letters, but to look at the color. And we can't dissociate the word from the color very easily. So we have to force ourselves to get into a frame of mind where we're able to do it. 
I think the same is what's going on in Revelation chapter 5. So he hears this word lion, and it's a loaded word. It's a word full of meaning and expectation of power and violence and might and these sorts of things. And so he hears the word lion, and he turns to see it, and what he sees is, well, it is the lion. He does see the lion of Judah. The angel didn't get it wrong. He wasn't lying. He wasn't like, oh, my mistake is actually a sheep. Like, he, he said, here is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Lion of Judah. And he turns around and he sees it and it is the lion, but the color is lamb. All right? So he sees lion, but the color is lamb. And it's almost like God is saying, when you hear that word lion, I want you to lay aside all the associations you have with that word of power and of might and of violent power, I particularly mean, and aggression and force. I want you to lay aside that. When you see lion, I want you to say lamb. When you see victory, I want you to say self-giving love. Are you with me? No. <laughs> Let me try and ground it. So the, the creatures and the angels that were gathering around, and they're like, Lord, how are you going to put this world to rights? And God says, I'm going to do it the way I promised you I was going to do it. Right back from the very beginning, I'm going to send the Lion of Judah. And great, and they turn around and it doesn't look like they'd expected. Why? Because God wants to subvert their expectations. Jesus is the Lion, but the way in which he wins his victory is Lamb-like. The Lion-Lamb wins victory through self-giving love. Now let me just pause there for a second. Because for many of you, A, that's a difficult concept for all of us to get our heads around. But for many of you, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I've read the book of Revelation, and it feels pretty lion-like. If you read through the book of Revelation, there is lots of language of warfare and bloodshed and, and, and might and violence, and it can feel pretty lion-like. So maybe you're thinking, yeah, I see how this works in Revelation 5, but what about the rest of the book? Friedrich Nietzsche called it the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. Two stars. <laughs> I, th I think many people would probably agree. I don't know how it even got two. But <laughs> I think many people would agree. Having read this book, it's a difficult book. I, I don't have it in my notes. I only thought to include it this morning as I was coming over. But D.H. Um, Lawrence, the poet, wrote a commentary on Revelation, despite being an atheist. And in it, he said, uh, The Lion of Judah has put on a fleece, but by his bite you shall know him. You see, his whole way of understanding the book of Revelation is, oh, God presents himself like a lamb. He presents himself like a God of love, but when the fleece slips, you see what he's really like, and he's a lion, and he's mighty, and he's out to crush people. And I think many of us can approach the book of Revelation with that sort of fear. I know I'm meant to think that God is a God of love. I know the Bible talks about him being a God of love, but when I read this book, it's like I feel like the fleece sort of drops, and I get to see God how he truly is, and I don't like what I see. It can feel like a lion-like book. But I would put it to you that if you take chapter 5 out of the equation, yes, it reads that way. But if you read the whole book through the lens of chapter 5, it is a lamb-like book. You know, Jesus is never again referred to as a lion. Only once here is the Lion of Judah. Then, from then on, he is the lamb 28 times. Why? Because the author wants us to know that the way that Jesus will win his victory is not lion-like, but lamb-like. The theologian Richard Hayes makes a brilliant point, which uh, having read so many books on Revelation, uh, too many books on Revelation, I, I definitely agree with him. Um, he says that the people who interpret Revelation best are not lion-like people, but lamb-like people. 
People who know what it's like to be oppressed, to be in the minority, to be on the margins, the people who know the cost of following the Lamb. And he says that when lion-like people tend to interpret this book, it becomes a goldmine for paranoid fantasy for those who want to preach revenge and destruction. I think he's right. The weird thing about this book is if you read it expecting or wanting to see a lion, you'll see a lion. It will justify your reading of it if that's what you're looking for. But if you read this book expecting to see the Jesus you know from the Gospels, who loved the unlovable, who laid down his life, who turned the other cheek, who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and then was led like a lamb to the slaughter, where he gave up his life out of love. If you turn to the book of Revelation expecting to see that, that's exactly what you see. This is a book about the powerful love of God. See, Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies, all the longings of the lion, but he did it in the color of lamb. Let me give you an example. Um, a few years ago, a an pastor and author who some of you would know of, uh, who was very committed to a very particular lion-like vision of masculinity, uh, wrote an article in which he engaged with this picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation. He said, this is true manhood. And he, he depicted in particular a bit from Revelation chapter 19, which is the section in which Jesus rides out for the war of the lamb against God's enemies. And the way this author describes Jesus, I think tells us more about the author than it tells us about Jesus. Maybe that's that's the case when any of us speak about God. It's certainly a risk. But he says this, Jesus here is like a cage fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. This, he says, is a guy I could worship. I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. Now, there are so many things I want to say about that. <laughs> I'll restrict myself to one, which is this. If you read the book of Revelation expecting or wanting to see a lion because you want to justify your own lionness, sure, you can read it that way. But if you read it through the lens of how Christ reveals himself as the one who fulfills lionness through the methods, the manner of lambness, it changes the whole way you read this book. And I think this vision of a cage-fighting Jesus with a commitment to making someone bleed is about a million miles away from what we see in Revelation 5. You know, the angel says, who is worthy to open the scrolls? What's the qualification for putting the world to rights? It's character. It's not who is strong enough. It's who is worthy. The qualification is not raw strength. It's character. That's what they're looking for. And when it's revealed that only one person is worthy, the creatures bow down before him, and they don't say, well, you're worthy to receive glory and honor and worship and wealth and power and to open the scroll because none of us could beat you up. No, they say you're worthy of worship. Why? Because you were beaten up. Because you're the lamb who was slain. Jesus didn't have a commitment to make someone bleed. He was so committed to this world that he bled. That's what you read in Revelation 5. And when you get that right, the rest of the book makes sense. He is the lion. He is the one we've all been waiting for. But the way in which he is lion-like is lamb-like. He gave his life for us, shedding his blood to make his enemies his friends. Jesus was nailed to a cross, and that's why we worship him. And if you think you can only worship a God that you can beat up, you're not worshiping God. Or at least not the way God reveals himself. He is the lion of Judah, but he is the lamb 
And if you read Revelation 19, and we don't have time to do it today, it's a tricky passage. If you read it through the lens of chapter 5, it changes the way you read it. Yes, it talks about warfare, because when you're talking about God overcoming evil, you've got to use extreme language sometimes. Yes, it talks in graphic terms, because if God is going to deal with the injustice in the world, he has to also deal with those who perpetrate injustice. So yes, there's important and difficult language, but think about it. As is so often in the case in Revelation, things are not as they seem. Yes, Jesus rides into battle. Yes, he has the armies of heaven with him, clothed in white and holding swords. Yes, Jesus' clothes are coated in blood. But read it carefully. Read it through the lens of the Lamb, and you'll see this. Not one of the people following behind him has any blood on them. They hold the swords, no blood at all. The only person who has blood on him is Jesus. And when does he have blood on him? Before the battle has started which means it cannot be the blood of his enemies. It is his own blood because he is the lamb who was slain. Completely consistent. Jesus is the one who will win the victory and put this world to rights. But if you think he's going to do it through lion-like power, you don't know Jesus. H.G. Wells coined the term the war to end all wars. Well, Revelation 19 is the war to end all wars. And the war does not get ended by war. It gets ended by love, by the one coated in his own blood because he gave his life for us. If you are here today and you're thinking, my vision of God is that he is lion-like. In fact, maybe you've never really engaged with the question of God because you just don't think you'll like what you find. Maybe you suspect that he is an angry, vindictive God who doesn't like you very much and you probably wouldn't like him very much. Maybe you're here thinking, I don't know why all these people sing about the love of God. That's not what I expect to find. Sure, we sing about him being like a lamb and loving, but surely when the fleece drops, we'll find out he's otherwise. I want to tell you, he's a lamb. And he has given his life for you to show you the full extent of his love. And his love is making this world new. Because at the cross, Jesus took upon himself all the pain and brokenness and destruction and death and injustice in this world all into his body so that he could quench its power forever as an act of love. And when he rose again from the dead, he showed the power of love to defeat even the greatest enemies and to welcome us into newness of life. God's love for you is extravagant. It is unparalleled. It is unquenchable. It is unstoppable. There is nothing that you or I could ever have done that could take us to a place where his love can't reach. His love goes the distance. There is no place that is too dark that his love cannot shine into. You don't have to earn his love. You can't earn his love. His love is unending. His love is all-powerful. He leaves the 99 to come and find the one. His love turns his enemies into friends. If you have looked at this book of Revelation and thought, I daren't go there because all this stuff that I believed about God, hoped that he'd a God of love, surely that book will undo it. No, it's a book about the love of God and how love will win out in the end. You will never see love greater than the love of God. You could search for a lifetime. 
You could search for a thousand lifetimes. You will never find love greater than the love Jesus showed for you at the cross. God loved us, and so he gave his life for us, and the world will be made new through his self-giving love. And if you want to know the love of God today, I don't just mean up here intellectually understanding, okay, God loves me. I mean here, all three. If you want to know the love of God today, don't leave this place before someone has prayed that you will know his love. Romans 5 talks about him pouring out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to pray that he will do that at the end of this sermon. I want us to know the love of God here and here and everywhere. We need to know the love of God. And if you have been a Christian following Jesus for years and you have never heard or never truly believed that he loves you, and maybe that idea, the D.H. Lawrence thing, well, I know I'm meant to believe he's a God of love, but secretly I fear that one day the mask will slip and I'll find out he's not. If you've been living with that kind of tension, I want to tell you today you can know the love of God. It's unending and it's for you. And if you have never known God, and you've never heard before that he loves you. And this is new to you. But you're thinking, well, I could follow a God like that. You can do that today as well. And at the end, I would love to give you an opportunity to experience his love and begin following him. But before I get there, and I'll get there in just a couple of minutes, I want to just say one more thing. Because the love of God changes us. When you experience the love of God, you can't be the same. It changes us. And we see that here in this passage. They weep because they're longing for the world to be put right. And the angel says, well, here's the lion. And they look and it's a lamb and it's the lamb that's been slain. And the lamb steps up and he takes the scroll. And it says the elders, they fall down before him and they sang a new song. Why a new song? Because the old songs just aren't good enough when you experience the love of God. When you experience the love of God, the longings that you had for him to defeat your enemies and overthrow people, those songs have to go out the window because you realize he is going to win the war through love. And so you encounter the love of God, you need a new song. And so they sing this song, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. When you see that the lion is a lamb, Two things happen, and both of them are worship. One, you sing a new song, celebrating his love, and two, you live differently as a result. See, they recognize that Jesus, the king and the priest, has come. And then we get to live as what? A kingdom and priests, ruling and reigning on the earth. But here's the thing. If you hear that language of kingship and ruling and reigning, and your mind goes as it's conditioned to towards lion-like ideas of ruling through force or violence or lording your own power above others, you've not understood the kind of lion that Jesus is. Because when Jesus, the king and priest, asks us to follow him, he asks us to emulate him, to be like him, to love as he has loved us. Interestingly, Nietzsche, who said that Revelation was the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all human history. He also said this. If there was one shot for Christians to get him to consider their claims, they would have to sing better songs for me to learn to have faith in their Redeemer, and his disciples would have to look more redeemed. 
Now, Nietzsche had all sorts of philosophical problems with Christianity in particular because he saw it as a religion of powerlessness and weakness. So he particularly didn't like this idea of a savior who would die in order to win a victory. But he said the one thing that would have given him a shot is if people sang new songs about their redeemer and then looked like him as well. That's the challenge. When you experience the love of God, we should respond by looking like the redeemer who we sing about. We are to live as he lived, walking in the way of love. Now, don't mishear me. I am not saying that power is unimportant or that influence is bad or anything like that. Jesus had all power, seven horns. He's on the throne. He's worthy of all worship and honor and glory and wealth. But why? Because he knew how to use it right. He didn't lord it over others. He laid down his life for the world. That kind of commitment to radical love will lead to the blessing of the world. The Prime Minister, ex-Prime Minister William Gladstone said this, we look forward to the time when the power of love will replace the love of power and then will our world know the blessings of peace. I love that quote. In Revelation 14, it depicts those who get to share in the victory of the Lamb. And what does it say? It's those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. You know, if I were marching into battle, I would way rather follow a lion than a lamb. But Jesus doesn't give us that choice. It's like, if you're going to follow me, that's fine. But I'm the lamb. And so if you're going to follow me, you follow the way of the lamb. That means loving your enemies. It means praying for those who persecute you. It means going the extra mile. It means turning the other cheek. It means laying down your weapons. It means forgiving those who mistreat you. It means being known for radical generosity and loving those who are hated and shunned. Why? Because Jesus has so loved us. How could we live any other way? As those who follow the Lamb, we must let our roar be love. And that's my challenge I want to leave you with this morning. Do you know the love of God and do you roar the love of God to those around you? Maybe the band can come back up. I want us to sing and celebrate the love of God this morning. I've deliberately kept it a little bit shorter today because I want us to do what they do here in this passage, to worship and to sing a new song and to celebrate all the good that God has done for us. But first I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that we are filled today with a sense of God's love afresh. And it may well be that that's a first-time thing for you. Maybe you have never chosen to follow Jesus before, but you think, yeah, I'd like to follow this Jesus, the Jesus I hear about from this passage. And if that's you, then as I pray, and I'm going to pray a prayer that comes from the Bible, from Ephesians chapter 3, as I pray, simply in your heart, say yes to what I'm praying. Say, I want that. Thank Jesus for his love and for dying for you. But then don't leave this place until you've talked to someone about it a trusted friend or me or one of the prayer team, we'd love to talk and pray with you further. It may well be that you've followed Jesus for years, but you know deep down you've not fully appreciated the love of God. Or you've lived with fear that maybe he says he's loving, but actually one day I'll find out he isn't. Today, I want to bring that together. I want to pray that you would know in a way that surpasses understanding the love of God. And maybe you know that you have experienced his love, but the challenge for you is loving others as he has loved you. Well, if that's the case, I want to pray that you would also know the love of God. Because we can't live in a lamb-like way to this world unless we are first fully convinced of Jesus' love towards us. So I want to pray that he would pour out his love by the Holy Spirit into our hearts. So why don't we stand? And if you're comfortable, you may find it helpful just to close your eyes. You may want to hold out your hands. 
I'm going to ask God to strengthen us, fill us with his love, and let our roar be love. So let's pray. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your innermost being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.